Welcome to Travel Tastemakers, a new podcast hosted by me, Peter Gould, and brought to you by T-Fest, the travel trade event of the future. In my 25 years in the travel industry, I've been a publisher of travel directories, CEO of one of the world's largest hotel consortia, and founder and chairman of Worldwide Events, which is my current position. In traveling around the world to my events, where luxury hotel buyers meet luxury hotel services, I'm lucky enough to talk to some of the most interesting people in this industry. This episode is with Billy Scully-Cohen, an old friend and colleague of mine. But that's not why I wanted to talk to him for Travel Tastemaker. Billy has worked his way up through the hospitality industry, become CEO of the Law Group, where he's built a hotel division from scratch. They now own and operate seven world-renowned hotels, including the Pulitzer in Amsterdam and Sea Containers in London. As you can imagine, we had lots to discuss. So much so that I've decided to split this into two parts. I hope you enjoy the great insights Billy shared with me. So, Bill, nice to see you. Good to see you. Can you just give us a bit of background on where you've come and where you are now? All a, a bit of a, a big accident in, in my journey, but I, I'm French. Uh, I moved to the U.S. as a teenager and uh, worked uh, as soon as I became an adult in fashion and retail for, for quite a few years. And then um, uh, after college, uh, started working in advertising. And uh, that's how I met Peter, actually, in trying to, and this is actually my first exposure to hotels, in trying to sell advertising to American hotels for the European market. I moved to London in 2003 to work with Peter in continuing to, to help hotels with marketing and, and help with a, a series of mice events that have continued on and been incredibly successful and uh, decided to go back to business school for no other reason that, you know, people around me seem to, uh, seem to be able to have options and excel in their careers in a way that didn't feel possible for me at the time. Did, when you went to business school, did you see that as a route into the hotel industry or did you just go there and see where it took you? At that point, I had touched hotels for a few years, not in a meaningful way, but certainly had caught a bit of a bug for the hospitality industry. And I went into business school figuring that I know how to do two things. I know a little bit about hotels and I know how to sell and market things. And I thought that my career post-business school, I'd have to use one of these, lever one of these things to, to get kind of in the right path post-business school. Went to business school, graduated and ended up working uh, at a bank as a hotel broker. Wasn't exactly what I wanted to do, but quite a good experience uh, post-business school. And then had the opportunity to go work for private equity groups, so a group that invests in hotels. So this is where I had really my first exposure to investments. And then joined Law Group almost 10 years ago. I always say I joined as the head of hotels, but I was a team of one of one at the time. And really, when I joined the group, this is a, a third generation real estate group. We won on the path that we're in today. We I joined. Well, so what, what was the law group when it to give people well, so, perspective? So, so the law group, which now we, we're called law group, which is just our hotel business, but global holdings are our real estate business is is really a core long term real estate group that invests in in different asset class within the real estate world, very focused on, on London and New York, but has invested a lot in Western, Eastern Europe and, and the US. And I really just came to define a bit more of a hotel strategy, but really just on the investment side. And at the time it was about buying interesting hotels in city centers in Europe. We felt like Europe is a museum, 
people will, as, as more and more people travel, people will want to go to London, Paris, Amsterdam, and these, these type of cities. And if we can find interesting hotel products, uh, let other people do the hard work and, and just invest that this could be an interesting business model. And that's how the journey got started. And here we are, you know, almost 10 years later, and, uh, and we're now a fully integrated hotel group and, and our owners and developers and, and operators. So let's try and break that down bit by bit into the story, if we can. So when you came, you were tasked as one person to buy hotels for this group. You really were just one person. Yeah. How many people are there now in in your in well? Group? So th th you, I guess you can break down our group in kind of three buckets, right? If you look at just our hotel corporate group, uh, we're about twenty, but then we're, we get support from our real estate group when it comes to kind of accounting and uh, uh, structure and so forth. If you include our core group at the head office and our executive team and our hotels, we're about thirty-five, forty. But then if you include our hotels and the people that work at our hotels with, with just, you know, seven hotels, we're about 1,200 people. So basically, you've gone from one person to 1,200 people in 10 years. Yeah, I mean, that's that's certainly one way to look at it, yes. And so I'd like to trace that because that's quite remarkable. What was your first project that you got into? Yeah, so we the first project, actually, the reason that I joined the group, we were looking at an acquisition in Paris. And I'm French. I happen to know that market quite well. And so there was a fit there. And in, in, this was a, in a core property. We we're trying to buy a Sofitel hotel from a core themselves, what we call a, a sell and management back. So they sell you the real estate and, and hold on to the management. And we worked on that for quite a long time. The deal fell through. And then for the next year, we, we, we looked at a few acquisition opportunities. But, but really, very quickly, we went from looking at new opportunities to reinventing an existing building that the group had owned for many years, which is called Sea Containers. It's a very large building on the River Thames, quite a prominent building. And we started redevelopment plans to do a mixed site, which was going to be half office, half hotels, uh, which is what it is today. So then you got an appetite for taking empty or, or underdeveloped buildings and turning them into hotels yourself. Is that, is that right to say? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the journey of, of this first big project, Sea Containers, uh, really uh, was, was a hell of a journey, actually. We, at first, we really thought about doing a limited service hotel in the back of the building. It was The hotel wasn't going to be a prominent part of the project. And then the project grew, and we started thinking about doing something much more ambitious, and at the time, we, we didn't know how to do that or how to go about it. And we went to Morgan's Hotel Group, which at the time was really the leading lifestyle brand, you know, Jan Schrager, uh, his story of, of, of landmark properties like the Delano in Miami or the St. Martin's Lane in London, and, and decided to, to sign up a management agreement and, and work with them on, on developing a new vision for this hotel, which was quite ambitious with over 350 rooms and 15,000 square feet of, of F&B space. And during that journey, first of all, I, I learned, you so, know- So I, can I, I just work out here, you've never run a hotel yourself I, or as a company before I, this point? At that point, I've never run a hotel, I've never designed a hotel, I've never concepted a hotel. And, you know, during that journey, I, I got a high school degree, an undergrad degree, a master's degree, and in hotel development and, you know, through mistakes, through a huge amount of hard work, through 
things that were incredibly painful and some that were incredibly rewarding. But certainly what we learned through that journey is that there's a real misalignment between an operating company and an ownership company throughout all the different phases of a, of a development or the operation of a hotel. And frankly, operators are, are incentivized by the top line. They typically get a, a percentage of revenue where owners should and do care about revenue. But at the end of the day, what they really care about is the bottom line of a, of a hotel. So just for, for some people, I want to just give this some context. So what we're talking about is the owner of a hotel, the, the capital, the money that's gone into it, and the operators, the companies that are running it. And what you realized was that, that there was and disalignment in the outcomes for both. And so what did you decide to do with that? How, how did that make you change your plans? Yeah, I, one thing to add on this is not only did we realize there was misalignment, but we were also realizing that there was a shift going on in the hotel industry and that it created an, an even bigger misalignment because the, 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 the you know, hotels were, were developing their public areas, their bars and their restaurants, and that's a local market. And hotel brands, which are international, which historically were about selling hotel rooms, really didn't know how to cater to that. So not only was there misalignment in kind of revenue and profits, there was misalignment, well, more than misalignment, we saw that brands were bringing less and less to the table. Uh, so what did we decide to do about that? In the course of the end of the development of this property, Sea Containers, we bought a landmark property called the Pulitzer in Amsterdam, property that existed already for 45 years, quite a well-known hotel in that market and to the international market. And the property was run by Starwood Hotels under luxury collection. And we made a decision that we were going to buy this hotel that we were going to terminate Starwood, which we had an opportunity to do, and that we were going to redesign, reconcept the hotel and try to operate it ourselves. Now, you wouldn't have been able to have even considered that without the Sea Containers project. Absolutely not. And so that project then made you realise the opportunity there was to do it your own way, take out an operator and change the economics, I guess, of the thing. So Pulitzer, I mean, it's a world-class famous famous hotel but it's sort of falling apart or used to be falling apart on a on a dutch canal i think so that must have been a huge project can you talk us through that from start to finish part of the driver to create an independent hotel out of the pulitzer is it's tough to describe over a podcast but you know it's 25 400 year old canal houses with a 20,000 square foot gardens in the middle of the hotel. It's surrounded by two of the most famous canals of Amsterdam. So, you know, we inherited gold to start with, right? But but you, you quickly realize that no brand fits that hotel. That hotel is one of one. It is just about as unique of a property as you can find in any city center around the world. So we started a journey of saying, right, what, what do we need to do to do this property justice? And and luckily, right, the, the storytelling was there for us to extract, right? It was really doing the history of the product and the, the bones that you had there and, and the city of Amsterdam justice, right? So we didn't need to, per se, come up with a concept for the hotel because it was all about bringing back the beauty of, of what had once upon a time been there and, and really try to grow that. And we always say kind of write the next chapter Had it been lost, property. in your opinion, oh, in what? what had happened absolutely starwood had had like what looked like standardized kind of four star plus type furniture 
throughout the hotel. You know, it looked incredibly corporate, right? They were trying to jam something that it wasn't, you know, into this jewel of an asset. So, you know, though it was, an again, a, a, a pretty challenging project for, for many different reasons, as far as our starting point of what we were trying to do with the property, it was right there in front of us. And who did the visualization and the conceptualization? Was this you or is there a team you, you get involved? Yeah, so at the time we, we worked with Tom Dixon uh, when we did Sea Containers, who is an iconic British designer. It was his first hotel, really amazing experience and an incredible talent. And during our Sea Containers journey, his number two guy, uh, a guy called Jaku Strauss, did a lot of the design for Sea Containers. And I built a very tight relationship with him. And we decided to bring him in-house. And we moved him to Amsterdam, and he lived at the Pulitzer. And uh, him and I started reinventing the property together. He's an incredible talent. He's, uh, we're now been working together for, for seven, eight years, and he's the creative director of our group. And is that finished, the Pulitzer now? Yeah, the Pulitzer uh, uh, fully reopened in, in August 2016. So it's been fully reopened for three years. And how long did it take? It took exactly three years from the time we bought the property till we fully completed the renovation. And out of interest, and let's not talk about specific numbers, but just comparatively, how is it doing now compared to how it did before? Has the project, has it been borne out that vision? Sometimes say that we peaked a little too early in our group. Uh, the Pulitzer has been a, an amazing success in kind of all measures. Uh, first of all, the, the recognition that we received for the hotel has been incredibly flattering and, and certainly a nice to have after all the hard work we put into the property. But financially, it's been, it's, it's been very successful. We did benefit, and it was part of the reason we bought the hotel, that Amsterdam in recent years has, has really been booming as a city and has been in the spotlight more than it had in, in years before. So we're always arguing internally how much credit we deserve versus the market helping us, but it's been an incredible success all around. Hi, I'm Emily Brooks, and I'm the Director of Sales for Private Luxury Events. I want to tell you about our new event, T-Fest the unmissable new global luxury travel festival powered by AI matchmaking technology to give you more time to connect with the people who really matter. Meet the world's most influential buyers and sellers in luxury travel. We've combined the best things about larger trade shows and intimate networking events to create a vibrant new festival format that's the best of both worlds. Large in scale, but still personal. Be part of the global gathering for the best and the bold. Book your spot now by searching T-Fest AI. It sounds to me that you've looked at the Pulitzer run by a brand and you transformed it much for the better. You took sea containers, brought a brand in and did it yourself and you've done that for the better. Why does anyone use hotel brands? Well, so for sea containers, it's worth highlighting that we worked with an operator for the first four years and, and actually terminated them and took the property fully independent about 12 months ago. Part of that as our aim of becoming a, a, a fully owned and operated group, but also because we felt it was the right thing for the property. But going back to your question, why, why do people need a brand? You know, obviously, you know, every hotel is different. If we bought an airport hotel tomorrow, I'm pretty sure we'd want to brand it because that's what you need to do in, in, in a hotel that you know, serves that purpose in that kind of location. But when you're buying, you know, certainly our belief is when you're buying prime real estate in the heart of city centers, 
the opportunity as an independent hotel for the consumer to find you nowadays and to to be able to generate some spotlight on your hotel is better today than it's ever been. Operating a hotel uh, is 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 not easy, but really brands don't know how to operate hotels. They have stopped becoming operators. They've become, you know, marketing and distribution companies. Not all operators, but most operators have almost given up the fine tuning of becoming very astute operators and really watching the pennies and the dime and really being able to insert certain cultures into their hotels. Well, they've got no motivation to do it if they're top line driven, actually. They're top line driven. And frankly, they get paid a lot more through growth than through optimizing a hotel, right? When for us, as being fully integrated, you know, generating an extra 5% to the bottom line is very important to us. Is the distribution channels that the brands bring now, are they less important than they used to be? That's a debate that keeps evolving in our industry. There is no doubt that the big winners in recent years are Expedia and Booking.com. They have eaten everybody's lunch. They have gained market share in just about every matrix you can look at. And they've done so because they don't have legacies of many brands where they're, they're in a different business. They're in the technology business. We're in the hotel business. So I, I certainly think that the, the big brands have, have lost leverage over these guys. And, you know, we always say internally, the biggest difference between working with Booking.com and a brand for distribution is I can turn off Booking.com. A brand, I have to pay them no matter whether the business comes from them or not. Uh, even though obviously these third-party distributors are, are are an expensive proposition. You know, we, we're at an interesting juncture in the business. All the brands are trying to, they, there are two things that they can still leverage, which is distribution and loyalty programs. Right now, the, the big boys, which is really IHG, uh, Starwood Marriott now, Accor and Hilton, are all trying to see how they're going to be able to grow and hold on to their biggest assets, which is those two things. There is no doubt that they bring distribution to a hotel, but you know, at what cost and depending on the hotel, the location and so forth, some need it more than others. We're talking now about the hard brands. Now you work with Preferred at all your hotels, which yeah. is a soft brand. Why have you chosen to do that and what do they bring to you? So our, the properties that, that we're running that are independent to date are, are big. And there are hotels that get a real mix of corporate leisure and group business. And there are also properties that, that have a lot of different feeder markets. And all our properties today, the American market is a very important feeder market. So why did we join Preferred? You know, frankly, it's a little bit of insurance as an independent operator. You know, they, they have presence at trade shows. They help us with road shows. They provide us with some mice leads. They, they can be helpful with some of the corporate contracting that we need to do. They really don't do a whole lot for leisure in our space. And for hotels that are big, that hopefully generate pretty high volumes of revenue and, and profit, they're actually not a, an incredible expensive proposition and, and provide, you know, decent services for, for what they charge. You've moved from ha working with the hard brands to running your own hotels. In the last 10 years, what's changed in the hotel industry that you've seen and what's going to change in the next 10 years as you see it? Yeah, I mean, it's been a, a fascinating industry to be part of in, in recent years. It's really has seen such a shift. You know, when we started the Sea Container journey, which is now about eight years ago, 
you know, going to Morgan's was because they were one of the only lifestyle players in town. And in the past decade, every, you know, hotel brand has been trying to bring an element of, and I'm using the word lifestyle for the lack of a better word, but turning a hotel into more of a, than a hotel, a place where people want to eat and drink, a place where people want to hold a meeting, whether it's a one-on-one -on -one meeting or, or a bigger meeting, a place that becomes uh, 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 with different type of stimulation through design and programming. And it's really been about taking kind of, again, the kind of boutique and lifestyle model and, and injecting that in, in every sector of the business. And we think this will continue to happen. It's really the new norm now. You know, people have become a lot more sensitive to design and, and what they eat and what they drink when they're in a hotel and people want to have a bit of fun. And, and we don't see that going away anytime soon. We do see a shift in the industry and, and frankly, the, not a, an original thought. It's much bigger than our industry. But, you know, the word wellness that gets kind of thrown around like the word lifestyle, which can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, is really at the core of the industry now. And, and the next kind of 10 years and people were paying, you know, above the odds to be part of something a bit fun, a bit eccentric. And we feel like people will continue to to pay to be part of a hospitality industry if we can also provide them with an opportunity to feel good in in every definition of the word, whether it's physically or mentally or and so so wellness has been around a long while. What you're saying is that you see it as actually being central to the development of how hotels are going to go. So for most people, you think a spa. What beyond that is going to happen? What how is it going to be integrated into the DNA of a hotel more than going to a room and having a massage? Again, right, feeling good is is about a lot of different things now. Aesthetics is part of it. I think design will make a shift from things that have felt very loud and very overstimulating. I think, you know, you'll see a lot more design in, in the next years to come that feel a, a lot more kind of calming and resting. And then, you know, it, it's about really providing a, an environment that, that allows people to feel good or be a better version of themselves. And, and again, that, that can take a, a, a lot of different shapes and turns from uh, healthy restaurants to rooms that are very sensitive to the way people sleep and the way people interact in their rooms to feel good, to different type of programming in hotels to partnership with people that are doing things that are meaningful in the community around our hotels. You know, for us, one of the things that we're exploring is options. It feels like nowadays, every hotel you go to is packing on more and more and more options. And actually, it feels that part of providing people with the right environment to feel good is to just provide them with the right options. And that doesn't mean that it all has to be good and healthy and zen-like. But that sometimes that, that overstimulation doesn't allow people to rest, doesn't allow people to feel good. And in some ways, actually going back a little bit to basic, to what the Marriott's of the world were really thinking about 40 years ago in providing what you need instead of all the things that you want on the one roof. So I've got a chance here to say something I've been wanting to say to the hotel industry for a long while. So bear with me a second. That there are too many choices. It's stressful. But also why... Do hotel bottles 
have small writing when people like me are 50 years old with wet eyes can't oh, Peter, see you're it... much older than 50 <laughs> you can't <laughs> see shampoo or conditioner and i have to go out and get my glasses weren't we going to fix that for people and also getting the lights to work in a room trying to get the lights to work in a hotel room is often like trying to do a maze whatever so the idea of simplifying things for consumer i don't know why they never did it before but i think it's a great idea you know it. it's interesting you said that we've we've kind of rebelled against technology in, in our hotels, I always feel that nobody wants to learn how to do anything while they're going to stay somewhere. By the way, I'm not much older than 50. I just want to just yeah. make sure I say okay. <laughs> uh, You know, people don't want to learn anything when they come and stay in a hotel room, whether it's to close the blind and so forth. So, you know, we try our best to, to do things that are very intuitive when it comes to lighting. You know, we feel strongly that you should just be able to turn off the light by your bed and turn it on by the door. And you don't really need any more things than that. I... I personally find funny when I go to hotels and people have like different lighting setting for your rooms. And, you know, again, right, there, there's a reason behind it, but the work you have to put in to really understand what it does feels like it's, it outweighs the reward that you would ever get from it. You know, if you can get a room that's nicely blacked out, that's easy to turn the light on and off, that has a good shower, a great bed, you know, after that, everything else is a plus. You gotta get the basics right. Simplification of hotel rooms seems the way to go for me, as long as they also remember to put larger type on the shampoo bottles. So that's the end of part one of the Billy episode. In episode two, we talk about how hotels can be more sustainable and numbers behind that, whether or not Airbnb is having an impact on the hotel industry and how social media is affecting hotel marketing as seen through Billy's eyes. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you helped us by subscribing and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen to it and by sharing it with your colleagues.